Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening. My name is Cheryl Peach. I'm a program scientist here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I uh, would like to welcome you to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. It's a great pleasure this evening to have Dr. Yuri Fialko here as our speaker. Yuri is a professor of geophysics here at Scripps in the Institute of Geophysics and Planetary Physics. He came here in 2001, I believe, after doing his PhD at Princeton in geophysics and a postdoctoral appointment at California Institute of Technology in seismology. Yuri is actually a recipient of a very prestigious award from NSF. It's called the Career Award. It's given to outstanding young scientists for um, excellence in both research and education, near and dear to my heart. So that's why I included it in the introduction. Um, Yuri's active in many areas related to seismology and geophysics, um, including looking at earthquakes in Southern California. That's one of the topics uh, for this evening. Um, He's also involved with a national program looking at applying modern observational, analytical, and telecommunications technologies to look at the structure and evolution of the Earth's crust. So he's looking at deformation at the sub-centimeter scale um, related to earthquakes and other deformation processes. So I hope you'll join me in welcoming Yuri this evening for his talk titled Earthquakes in Southern California, A View from Space. Yuri, thank you very much. Well, uh, thank you very much for a generous introduction, and thank you all for coming. It's my great pleasure uh, to have this opportunity to talk to you about some of the work that we're doing at Scripps. Um, What I would like to uh, discuss today is um, the use of space geodesy uh, for studying earthquakes in California and and beyond. Um, I would also be talking about the broader tectonic context in which uh, uh, we have uh, seismicity in California. And... uh, speculate in the end about uh, what future uh, may um, have in store for us and how we can and should prepare for it. Uh, the work that I will be presenting is just not just my own research. I will be also uh, showing work from other people, uh, both here at Scripps and elsewhere, uh, as well as some uh, very gifted graduate students and postdocs. Um, so many of you may have uh, noticed that uh, this year we had uh, quite a few of notable earthquakes uh, in this hemisphere, uh, starting with um, uh, seven, magnitude 7.0 um, earthquake that struck Haiti uh, in January of this year. Uh, this uh, happened to be a truly a humanitarian catastrophe with uh, a death count in the range of hundreds of thousands and uh, uh, very uh, dramatic impacts on the local economy. Uh, Now Haiti is slowly rebuilding uh, with the help of international community, but things are still incredibly tough over there. Then uh, in February of this year, we had a great uh, magnitude 8.8 earthquake that uh, shook most of Chile. Um, There was a widespread uh, damage to the infrastructure that uh, one might expect based on the earthquake of this size, but fortunately, the loss of life was much, much smaller than Haiti. And the lesson there is that uh, seismic building codes and the proper um, reinforcement of those codes uh, really do save lives and and pay off. Then um, in April, on Easter Sunday, we had uh, an earthquake uh, in northern Baja, California that many of you may have felt if you were in town. 
Um, this earthquake caused some widespread damage, um, but uh, claimed only two lives. Uh, we'll come back uh, and discuss this earthquake in further detail. But uh, for now, let me just point out that um, I was plotting the locations of these earthquakes on this so-called global seismic hazard map uh, that uh, shows the probability of uh, exceedance of ground acceleration of a certain magnitude over a certain period of time, in this case, 50 years. And uh, the point that I'd like to make here is that these earthquakes all happened in areas of red, where we knew uh, there is a pretty good chance that a significant earthquake uh, would happen. So uh, the point that I'd like to make is that uh, we are not doing too bad in terms of long-term forecasts of uh, uh, significant seismicity. And none of these events were um, surprises for the scientific community in terms of uh, where they happened and, and, and how large they were. Just to bring this point a little bit closer to home, this is a similar map of earthquake probabilities for the state of California in which colors show the likelihood that somewhere in this area there will be an earthquake larger than uh, magnitude 7.6 Northridge earthquake that happened in the Lay area in uh, 1994. So warmer color indicates larger probability um, of, uh, of a significant earthquake. And it's not really a question if a major earthquake will uh, strike Southern California, but uh, when and where. Uh, as you can see on this map, um, the highest probability, the highest estimated probability um, anywhere in the state is associated with uh, the southernmost part of the San Andreas Fault, which has about 59% chance of uh, an earthquake of this magnitude happening over the uh, next 30 years. So um, what I'm going to do is that I will talk about some science that goes beyond these estimates and then also discuss some of the uh, local ha hazards we have in our own backyard. Well, first, let me uh, step back and uh, uh, discuss why we have earthquakes in California in general. Uh, as most of you know, um, California hosts uh, a major boundary between two tectonic plates, the North American plate and Pacific plate. And it's the relative motion between these two plates um, is what's causing stress increase in the crust and um, eventual yielding that, that generates earthquakes. Uh, we all know that uh, Southern California is earthquake country. In fact, there are over 30 earthquakes that are happening every day in California. And this map shows um, large earthquakes that happened um, over the last century, shown by these color uh, circles. And smaller earthquakes with magnitude less than four, shown by these uh, small dots. And those are the little earthquakes that are happening on an everyday basis. Um, so. Earthquakes are a fact of life um, in California, and uh, local public is generally very knowledgeable about uh, earthquake and seismicity in general. Of course, there are some extreme views. Uh, on one hand, um, we have people that have, uh, how should I put it, um, a bit of a cavalier attitude, uh, like being there, we've seen them all, there is nothing that can happen uh, that we haven't already experienced. Um, this kind of uh, attitude is um, uh, has propagated into the popular culture and is perhaps best illustrated by an episode from one of my favorite movies, uh, The L.A. Story. Sarah, what do you do? I'm here writing an article about Los Angeles for the London Times. Oh. Well, you've come to the right place. What do you do for a living, Raleigh? Yeah. I deal in English paintings. Abstract or realistic? Depends on where you look at the possibility. What's 
this? An earthquake. How strong is it, Harris? I give it a four. So, when an executive or a business person... All right, uh, on the other extreme, we have um, a more of an apocalyptic view um, of some kind of a doomsday scenario in which um, there may be a magnitude 10.5 uh, earthquake that uh, would cause um, much of California falling uh, into the ocean. Um, these are some animations of, of this kind of scenario. Um, <laughs> I guess some people just like the general notion that SeaWorld can extend all the way into the downtown of San Diego. So um, what does science tell us about what's possible and what's impossible? Uh, this is an illustration of our current understanding of uh, how major uh, mature strike slip faults like the San Andreas Fault operate uh, from an earthquake to an earthquake. Um, down at greater depths, where pressures and temperatures are high enough so that earthquakes cannot really uh, support significant stress and they cannot fail in a brittle fashion. And so what rocks uh, do is that they simply creep at a constant rate, accommodating this uh, uh, steady plate motion. Uh, this creep at greater depths puts stress in the upper crust, which bends and flexes in response. And this also increases stress on the shallow portion of the fold. And when that stress reaches a certain value, uh, at some point, rupture happens. Uh, and this, it, it produces seismic waves. And the shallow crust then catches up with the deeper uh, layers below it. Um, and so the process then repeats. And over multiple earthquake cycles on time scales of thousands to millions of years, the total combined motion from these uh, two types of interseismic and co-seismic deformation will sum up to something that looks like a rigid block motion of two plates uh, past one another. Well, the twist to the story is that uh, major faults don't break at once. They tend to break uh, in individual segments. And so when one segment breaks, it puts stress on the neighboring segment. And uh, then that seg segment would eventually fail. And so this is how uh, motion is accommodated over a long period of time. This kind of model is uh, well illustrated if we look at the historic uh, seismicity over the San Andreas fault system. Uh, this is a map in which uh, ruptures were, were color-coded according to their time. And if we just uh, go forward in time, uh, the last time the central section of San Andreas broke in a major earthquake was uh, in 1857. This was uh, the Great Fortejon earthquake. Then going further in time, now this was the rupture that produced the Great uh, San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Uh, the central and northern section of San Andreas are separated by uh, this so-called creeping section of, of the fault in which uh, the two fault sides are just sliding past one another at a constant rate and they uh, do not accumulate much stress and therefore they do not pose a significant seismic hazard. Uh, fast forwarding uh, through time all the way to now, one thing that you may notice is that the only section of the fold that hasn't um, ruptured in historic times is this section uh, at, at the very south. And uh, studies um, of paleoseismology using geologic methods in fact indicated that this part of the fold did produce uh, larger earthquakes in the past, and that's a sure indication that it will break again in the future. 
Um, so even though there were not uh, a major earthquake on the San Andreas uh, itself in the southern section in historic times, there were sure plenty of large earthquakes happening around the fault. And in fact, over the last 50 years, Southern California was the most seismically active part of the Western United States. Uh, here are some examples of uh, major earthquakes that, that were happening uh, in recent years. Uh, this pair of earthquakes, the Landers and Hector Minor earthquake uh, of magnitude greater than seven, fortunately happened in the remote uh, Mojave Desert um, part of the state, and therefore they did not cause much of a damage. Uh, the 1994 Northridge earthquake um, was the largest uh, and the costliest natural uh, disaster in the U.S. history uh, up until uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. And that earthquake wasn't even that great. It was only magnitude 7.6. And then um, last April, we had El Mayor earthquake at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. What, what does this pattern of activity uh, really mean? Um, we're not sure, but uh, it offers a somewhat uncomfortable analogy with the activity that was happening on the northern section of the fault uh, around San Francisco. Again, just to remind ourselves, this is uh, uh, the northern section that broke in the 1906 event, shown here by red, and this is some of the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake. Um, and if we uh, look at the seismicity around the fault in years preceding the 1906 event, the pattern um, is shown here in this figure. So here we have time axis along this line. And each box here shows a significant earthquake with uh, the respective magnitude. Uh, the records were not that good before uh, year 1850 because uh, there were not enough people living in the state, um, in that part of the state at that time. But uh, we have a pretty good um, um, knowledge of the uh, number of earthquakes that were happening in the 50 years before uh, 1906 event, and it looked like uh, crust was responding to some uh, significant loading. So it was as if the crust was uh, being loaded to some critical level, uh, leading up to the um, magnitude 8 earthquake. And after it happened, it is effectively shut down seismicity for almost 50 years. And now it starts to uh, pick up again in the Bay Area. All right, so uh, what can we do uh, to better understand uh, earthquakes and the slow tectonic deformation uh, that is causing them. Well, one thing that we can do is uh, measure deformation at the Earth's surface, both from earthquakes and uh, slow tectonic loading, and then relate the deformation to the accumulation of stress at greater depths. Uh, so now let me introduce some of the observation tools that we're using for this purpose. Uh, first, we'll rely on the GPS or global positioning system uh, to measure velocities or displacements at uh, select points on the ground that have pre-established monuments. Uh, the way GPS works is that we have a constellation of 24 satellites. They're constantly orbiting. Um, and these satellites are equipped with uh, highly precise atomic clocks and time beacons. So if you happen to have an antenna and receive those signals, then you can measure travel times between a given point on the ground and the satellites that you have within your line of sight. And then you can convert this uh, travel time into distance. And then if you know distances to more than three satellites, then you can actual, uh, get the actual position by uh, simple geometry. Um, so these are kinds of instruments that uh, we use to do uh, GPS measurements. They're not very different from the GPS navigators that you have in your cars. These antennas are slightly uh, bigger and more accurate. And we allow them to sit at a given location for uh, significant amount of time to improve the accuracy. 
And in the end, what we're getting is this pattern of uh, velocity vectors or displacement vectors that tell us uh, how fast and by how much um, this part of the ground has moved over a given period of time. Uh, another technique that we're using is um, called INSAR, or Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar. And um, it consists of a microwave instrument on board of some moving platform, such as a satellite or, or an aircraft, that sends pulses of electromagnetic energy down to the Earth and then records the backscatter. And the satellite uh, is going on repeated orbits. Um, it's providing its own, own source of illumination, so it does not depend on... Um, day or night condition or, or cloud cover. And then w when we collect uh, these images um, over some period of time, then we can subtract radar phase uh, in the before acquisition and the after acquisition to form this fringe pattern, which we uh, uh, call radar interferogram. And fringes here really represent the amount of motion between points on the ground and the satellite antenna. So this is the actual interferogram of the El Mayor earthquake. and uh, now I'm going to uh, talk about the El Mayor event in, in some more detail. So El Mayor Kukapa earthquake was the largest earthquake to uh, strike Southern California in uh, about 18 years. Um, this uh, inset shows the regional map uh, with the red line indicating uh, the plate boundary between the Pacific Plate and North American Plate. And this is a zoom in on this area. Um, this, is this, uh, this red star shows the epicenter of the uh, Kukapa El Mayor earthquake, and white lines show uh, the offsets that a uh, team of field geologists have reported shortly after the earthquake by uh, just going in the field and measuring them. Uh, this blue line is uh, inferred rupture trace of the Laguna Salada earthquake that happened in this area about 120 years ago. Um, this red line is the surface trace of the fold that we inferred based on the analysis of uh, space geodetic data. And uh, as you can see, um, it effectively doubles the rupture lengths. And this is supported by um, um, locations of aftershocks that are shown here by white dots. As you can see, aftershocks from this earthquake uh, extend all the way from um, Bay of California uh, into the Kukapa Mountains, and then they um, cross the international border into U.S. territory. Uh, our Mexican colleagues are classifying these earthquakes in the north as illegal aftershocks. <laughs> um, well, um, here are some pictures uh, of the surface rupture. You, you can see the full scarp. Uh, here is a person for a scale. And these are radar interferograms that uh, give us a fairly accurate and detailed uh, view of uh, how much ground has moved in the result of this earthquake. So the fault rupture is uh, shown here by a dashed line, and every color fringe uh, in this image corresponds to about uh, two and a half centimeters of motion. And as the fringe density gets larger toward the fault trace, um, it means that displacements get larger and also strain uh, is increasing. Um, and this is um, a map of total horizontal displacements that we can obtain from uh, these kinds of interferograms uh, with uh, displacements in centimeters shown here. So we have a generally higher displacement near the full trace and uh, they then grade back to zero far away, uh, just like one would expect. Well, one thing that we can use with this highly detailed information of, on surface displacements is that we can invert it to uh, say something about how the fault look at depth. So this is inversion 
for the full structure and you can see that slip has extended from surface down to depths of maybe 10 to 15 kilometers and colors uh, indicate the amount of slip so going from zero slip for um, blue color all the way to uh, uh, more than three meters of slip for, um, for red color. Um, we can also uh, plot aftershocks uh, shown here by black, black dots uh, to see how they relate to areas of highest slip and it turns out in fact that the fault um, had a fairly simple trace at the surface but a rather complex structure at depth. Here I'm ro rotating this so that you can see it better and so it has this propeller type structure it changes dip as the rupture was propagating from the hypocenter both to the north and to the south. Uh, one interesting feature of this comparison is that uh, for example, we can see that um, aftershocks uh, tend to hug areas of high co-seismic slip. And so they're happening on the periphery of area of high slip. And that makes sense mechanically because this is the area where stress was actually increased in the result of, uh, of that earthquake. Uh, one other use um, of these kinds of slip models is that we can um, put them into a model and calculate how much stress has changed in the surrounding crust. And this is an example of this type of calculation in which uh, blue color indicates a decrease in shear stress on the potential full plane oriented uh, northwest. And a red color indicates an increase in shear stress in the same direction. And one thing you may notice here is that there are lots of these aftershocks to the north of the border that seem to be correlated with uh, areas of warm color. And so uh, the implication is that they were likely triggered by stress changes uh, from, from this earthquake. Now, we can use uh, exact same techniques that um, I just showed you to uh, study slower tectonic processes um, that eventually give rise to earthquakes. Um, and this is a much more challenging problem because now we have to measure signals which are much, much smaller. So we have to look at lots of data and we have to uh, combine them to, in the hope to uh, reduce the noise. But the results that I will be showing you here um, next come from this area around Salton Sea. This area is centered on um, the southern section of San Andreas and we hope to get some idea about how fast this fault is training at the surface and perhaps get some insights as to what's, what's, what's happening at depth. Uh, so this work builds on our previous study that was published a few years ago. And uh, these are results of, uh, these are newer data that we're obtaining in collaboration with Italian colleagues. Uh, and these maps show uh, velocities of the ground. These are, this, this represents slow tectonic motion. Here you can see a color scale. Um, essentially, we have rate of motion between uh, what we call stable North America and Pacific Plate of about one and a half centimeter or 15 millimeters per year. So this, is, this just gives you an idea of how small a signal we can measure. Uh, these are two satellite tracks that cover uh, adjacent areas. And in fact, these tracks overlap in space. And so we, when we co-register them together, you see that uh, we in fact uh, measure uh, deformation on the ground quite confidently. In addition to that, we also use data from uh, a network of GPS stations and uh, we can infer not only the spatial pattern of velocities on the ground but also the time dependence. And this shows a comparison of a time series of deformation inferred from INSAR data shown here by black dots and uh, GPS time series shown here by red stars from this station SIO3 which is uh, in fact continuously recording data not, not far from here. 
by combining these uh, radar swaths into larger mosaics, uh, we, we uh, start seeing some interesting features. So first of all, uh, let me point out that there is some systematics in, into how these colors in these maps change um, as we go across the plate boundary. You see that um, there is a zone of transition from green color to yellow color and from yellow color to uh, red color. And not surprisingly, these transitions are associated with major uh, crustal faults. Here we have the San Andreas Fault and the San Jacinto Fault, uh, which are the two main players. We can combine these um, highly uh, accurate line of sight maps with um, continuously recording GPS data um, to see exactly how this deformation is partitioned across the plate boundary. And next I'm going to look at the profile that goes 100 kilometers each way uh, from the trace of San Andreas Fault, and it's about 50 kilometers wide. So what I'm going to do is that I'm, I'm going to take all the points inside this uh, box and collapse them on, onto a single line to obtain a single profile. And this is what I get. Here I have a comparison between INSAR data shown by the gray dots and uh, ground measurements, GPS and electronic distance measurements shown by these red symbols. And uh, you can see that these there, this, these independent data are in, in very, very good agreement. Um, the next step is to really uh, try to model these data in terms of uh, what, uh, uh, what velocity does each fault have at depth. And so we, we need to understand how this total mo motion across uh, the two plates is partitioned on major crustal faults in the area. And so this is a tricky exercise because uh, often you can fit the same data using models that look different. Um, but this is an example of one, one of such exercises in which we uh, do a fairly good job in, in fitting the observations. And the result that we get from these observations is the so-called slip rate or the rate of motion on major faults at depths. And for San Andreas, um, the current numbers are in the range of uh, 15 to 20 millimeters per year. In fact, it's a bit lower than the previous estimates, which in fact is a good news because it means that the fault is training at a lower rate. So um, seismic hazard may be just a little bit lower. But they're still large enough so that when we take this rate and multiply it by the time over which the fault did not have an earthquake, so it remained quiet, we, had a no we have a number in the range of uh, four to six meters. And that's a large number. It just gives you an idea of what's the potential for uh, next great earthquake, how much the fault can move in order to catch up and uh, um, come in equilibrium with, with the underlying substrate. Um, okay, so now I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about how we can use this scientific knowledge um, in societal interest or how we can translate this knowledge into something that uh, we can do to uh, prepare for um, these kinds of events. Um, this is a very good opportunity uh, to give this lecture um, uh, just before uh, ShakeOut activities that will be happening next week. How many people here know about ShakeOut? Okay, there are a few. How many people will be actually participating in the ShakeOut activities? All right, so um, let me uh, say a few words about what ShakeOut really represents. Um, originally, it started as a possible earthquake scenario based on uh, best science. So uh, the idea was really to take everything that we know about uh, major faults in California and uh, see what kind of ground shaking could result from a potential earthquake on, on the faults that uh, we know about. And in this case, Southern San Andreas was chosen as, as the most likely candidate. Um, 
in this uh, shakeout uh, scenario, it was the, the fault was assumed to run for 800, 180 miles, uh, nucleating at the south uh, near Bombay Beach near Salton Sea, and rupturing all the way to uh, the big band of San Andreas Fault. Uh, this uh, magnitude of the simulated earthquake was about 7.8. Uh, the map I'm showing here on the right shows the intensity of shaking predicted by um, this numerical model. And uh, the next step, uh, the important step that uh, needed to be taken is what this scientific prediction really mean in terms of impact on the local population in, in, and if infrastructure. Uh, so I'm going to show you the simulation, the simulated motion from uh, this shakeout uh, rupture scenario. So here the fault nucleates. Uh, at the south, uh, many of you may have seen this movie before. And what is shown here is the peak ground velocity in meters per second. So the rupture propagates to the north. And one feature that uh, you may notice here is that uh, there is this very uh, high amplitude protracted shaking in the Los Angeles area. And that results from the fact that uh, there is a low velocity sedimentary basin that is capturing the energy of seismic waves, um, just like uh, <coughs> um, light is captured inside the, inside the light cable. Uh, so I'm going to show a different movie that shows the same kind of simulation. Here uh, on the left we have nucleation of rupture uh, near uh, Bombay Beach and then it propagates to the north. And uh, this is a view uh, of ground shaking. It's uh, highly exaggerated uh, but still realistic pattern of ground shaking uh, viewed from Long Beach. And what you see here in this simulation is peak ground velocity shown by a red color. Um, this is the, what we call a P wave. This is the first wave that propagates out of the source region and, and uh, moves at a high speed. Therefore, it arrives fat, uh, first at any given location. It really does not produce much of a shaking. Most of the shaking is associated with the trailing S wave and surface waves that uh, arrive sometime later. And so here what you can see is uh, this propagation and, and entrapment of seismic energy into the sedimentary basin. And now you see this front of uh, strong shaking. Notice that now we're uh, 70 seconds into simulation, so there is some delay between the rupture um, initiation and the arrival of the actual seismic energy. And now you can see the pattern of ground motion, uh, how it would happen according to that uh, particular prediction. Uh, so the ground would move both sideways and vertically, and uh, the amplitude of, of that ground shaking will indeed be pretty intense. Uh, again, for comparison, Northridge earthquake uh, produced strong shaking that lasted about uh, 7, 15 seconds. Here we're talking about uh, ground shaking of the order of minute or perhaps even, even larger. And that actually has important uh, implications for the stability and uh, integrity of uh, high-rise building because those buildings in fact have frequencies that are close to the frequencies uh, of the seismic radiation. Uh, so in Northridge, uh, duration of shaking was a critical factor. If uh, duration lasted for longer, in fact many of the buildings would have gone down in the result of that earthquake. Uh, let me um, move forward. This is a summary uh, from the shakeout scenario for the duration of uh, ground shaking at different locations. Here you see that uh, we indeed are talking about tens of seconds and uh, into the range of minutes. Um, these are some predictions uh, from that hypothetical earthquake in terms of the infrastructure damage. 
and you see that these numbers are indeed quite staggering. Um, in fact, this is not uh, even a worst case scenario. Um, first of all, this is uh, thanks to the fact that a lot was done by state authorities to really retrofit the old buildings and retrofit the bridges. And so we have in place good building codes and this is uh, perhaps the first and the most important line of uh, defense against um, um, losses from, from a significant earthquake. Um, it's also not the worst case scenario because um, this particular uh, scenario was, was kind of remote, so San Andreas is not really crossing major metropolitan areas, it's just the seismic radiation that reaches that area. And so there are possibilities in which uh, we, have, we can have quite strong earthquakes that are sitting exactly where we have uh, buildings and high population density. And also this scenario does not include Santa Ana winds. And according to these calculations, about half of the losses will be associated not with the ground shaking itself, but with the fires that will be uh, following, um, following that shaking. So um, uh, what about San Diego? Um, you may have seen that uh, from the shakeout simulation, uh, the impact on San Diego perhaps will not be as severe as on Los Angeles. Of course, everyone will feel that and will not, be, will not uh, escape unscathed in this case, but uh, it, it's really not that dramatic. But of course, we have our local um, earthquake hazards here in this area, and um, most people perhaps know, know about the Rose Canyon Fault that runs just offshore here. Uh, so let me mention some of the facts about Rose Canyon Fall. It's shown here by this blue trace. Um, it goes offshore um, up to the north and connects with the uh, more extensive fault system that is known as uh, New Newport Inglewood Fault. Um, by the way, here we're located uh, just right uh, off the Scripps Pier. And then Rose Canyon Fall takes a, a turn which is a compressive bend in the fault, and this compressive bend is exactly the reason why we have a Soledad mountain and elevated topography in this case. And then it continues further in the valley and just follows um, Highway 5. So good news about uh, Rose Canyon Fault is that it has a fairly low slip rate. The slip rate estimated by geologic studies um, is about one millimeter per year, so it's about a factor of uh, 10 to 20 less than more active San Jacinto and San Andreas fault. Uh, the bad news is that we don't really know what uh, the so-called recurrence interval is or when the last earthquake on the Rose Canyon fault has happened. So um, in terms of seismic hazard, both of these variables are important because you can imagine that if, even if you have a very slow deformation rate, if you wait long enough, you can accumulate a significant amount of stress. And so seismic hazard is really a product of these two. Um, so Rose Canyon itself uh, has a potential for magnitude 6 to 7 events. Um, these events uh, can produce quite uh, significant impacts, if, especially if you're close to, uh, to the rupture. Uh, one can expect high-frequency uh, seismic waves and a high acceleration shaking. Uh, we, in fact, have an example of uh, uh, an event of uh, magnitude 6.6 .6 that happened a few years ago in Iran. It was a BAM earthquake. Um, here you have um, a map that shows the earthquake rupture and aftershocks and, and the city of Bam, which, which was very unfortunately located right above that earthquake fall. And you can see here some of the aftermaths. Uh, this is an old uh, uh, fortress before and after the earthquake. Um, 
This is the uh, fault uh, slip model that we derived by looking at um, some of the satellite imagery. And, and you can see there is this area of uh, high slip directly below the surface. Um, and so the seismic energy was propagating straight up. There was uh, no lead time. Um, waves are, were just coming from the source and hitting the ground almost instantaneously. Um, this is the uh, satellite radar image of the, of the epicentral area. And you see um, city of Bam and Berevat as these bright uh, reflectance um, locations. These bright um, areas are, are there because uh, buildings, in fact, are very efficient uh, uh, reflecting surfaces. So they scatter lots of energy back to, uh, toward the satellite. Uh, here is the airport that um, acts more like a mirror, and therefore it appears dark in the radar image. And now this is um, what we call a radar coherence map. So what it means is uh, how much the ground conditions has, have changed be before and after the earthquake. So yellow color means uh, little change. Blue and purple color indicates a lot of change. And so in these um, populated areas, in fact, most of that decorrelation came from uh, complete collapse of buildings and complete resurfacing um, of the ground in the result of the earthquake. By the way, the earthquake rupture itself is, um, is right here, indicated by this streak of blue color. So uh, what one can do uh, to prepare for earthquakes, things are really simple. But uh, at the same time, um, everyone uh, should uh, keep them in mind. Uh, for example, just ask yourself at the last time when you experienced strong shaking from El Mayor earthquake or from, from uh, some other earthquake, uh, what did you do? Did you have a plan? Um, did you run, run out of the door? Did you hit under the table? Uh, did you just do nothing? Um, so it's good to have a plan in advance and sometimes practice it. Um, so these are just uh, um, rules that uh, everyone should follow. And I'm sure most people here uh, actually do follow them. So what we have next week um, on October 21st, there will be a, a Southern California-wide annual public earthquake drill. Uh, it will be at 10.21 a.m. Um, in fact, it's the third time the event on this, of this scale is, is uh, occurring in Southern California. The first shakeout was carried out in 2008. It's a day of special events, really, to inspire, inspire people to get ready for uh, big earthquakes. Uh, we uh, have millions of participants. I think more than uh, six million people now have registered to participate in ShakeOut uh, at this point. Uh, this is the first year that UCSD will be holding a campus-wide earthquake preparedness exercise. Uh, it will be on a different date, two days just before um, uh, the, the actual ShakeOut. Um, but uh, if you would like to learn more, I, I encourage you to visit uh, this website and get registered. Um, talk to your neighbors, your family, um, uh, your colleagues at work. And so the message is um, uh, get involved and participate. So uh, here um, I, I'm going to stop. Thank you very much. And I will take questions. OK, so the question was, whether we can measure uh, one millimeter per year that I mentioned for the Rose Canyon fault with uh, satellite measurements or space geodesy? Uh, the answer is no. It's, in fact, too small. It's within the errors of our measurements. So we only know that from geologic studies. So people have 
uh, dug up trenches and measured the offsets and dated those offsets, and this is how we have some idea about the slip rate on the Rose Canyon Fault. Okay, so the question was, um, what, what would be the effect of uh, uh, on subsurface water, um, especially in Long Beach where there was some oil extraction and then replacement of uh, extracted oil with seawater? And uh, the answer is that uh, usually when we have water-saturated sediments, they uh, do not behave well during significant shaking. So what happens is uh, what we call a liquefaction. So water gets mobilized and this whole uh, stack of sediments that was uh, behaving like a competent solid all of a sudden becomes a liquid. And all of things that are starting to happen at the surface, including sinking of uh, various kinds of objects and uh, really extreme motion um, on the ground because the earthquake shaking gets amplified in areas of low velocity. And in fact, lots of behavior of this type was uh, happening in the El Mayor earthquake. Um, in the areas that uh, were in the agricultural valley. And so there were lots of soft sediments and there were really widespread liquefaction that uh, really caused a lot of damage. In fact, the liquefaction was the primary um, uh, culprit uh, behind destroying essentially the entire irrigation system. So right now, uh, agriculture in the Mexicali Valley is almost shut down. And so they're working on rebuilding the canal structure again. Okay, the question is if we can use SAR data to uh, image what's, what's, going what's going on below the surface. And uh, the, the, the answer is, is not, not directly. Uh, INSAR measurements provide us with very precise motions of, of the Earth's surface. But in order to understand what goes on below the surface, one has to really um, use some kind of a model. So it's not a direct measurement. Uh, it's, it's a model-dependent uh, kind of inference. Okay, so the question... Yes, the question uh, was, um, when was the last earthquake on the Rose Canyon Fault? And what was the size of that earthquake? Um, I actually don't know very well um, the, the dating of the last earthquake. Perhaps Tom Rockwell of San Diego State is the person uh, to ask because he was doing, he was doing the work. Uh, and the size of the earthquake is really not well constrained because these two variables uh, are very difficult to determine separately. So usually when geologists have a good constraint on the timing of the last event, they have a poor constraint on the amount of slip and vice versa. All right. so the question was that uh, some time ago um, in the 50s, um, there was some motion across uh, a fault line uh, in the 70s. When they cut the road, Yes, so here in La Jolla, and uh, there were some white lines drawn across the fold, um, presumably to measure the offset, and uh, the answer is probably yes. So in, these, in those days, uh, this was the main uh, and easiest way of actually measuring offsets, just going out in the field and deploying some simple instruments. Okay, so the first question was um, if we uh, have a good idea whether the rate of plate motion was different in the past compared to what we measure uh, at present? And the answer is generally yes, because uh, there are ways in which we can uh, determine plate motions over time scales of uh, tens of millions of years and hundreds of millions of years, and those involve different types of geophysical measurements. Uh, but uh, as far as, for example, plate motion uh, in the western U.S. is concerned, for example, the relative motion between Pacific and North American plate, um, what we measure 
at present using geodetic data that represent averages over maybe a few years to a few tens of years are in fact in excellent agreement with geological measurements that represent averages over millions of years. So at least over those uh, periods of time, it looked like the plate motion was pretty constant and it was what it is now. Uh, the second question about uh, how, why the plate, um, the plates move the way they move, uh, why they choose particular directions. Uh, ultimately, this is uh, determined by what's going on in the Earth's interiors, because in the Earth's interiors we have a very slow uh, motion, uh, which we call convection. It's just a um, circulation of uh, highly viscous, highly uh, um, uh, sluggish rocks, and uh, it's that convection pattern that ultimately determines uh, what happens on the Earth's surface. So plates. Um, um, affect the Earth's mantle convection in, in many ways. Uh, in fact, they may be uh, providing significant driving force for plate convection, but it's the interaction between where plates go uh, at the surface and what happens at depths, which really determines the present pattern of uh, relative plate velocities and, and their directions. Okay, uh, so if I understood the question correctly, uh, it was about another plate uh, that was uh, located somewhere in the Pacific at greater depths. And um, we have no knowledge of, of such a plate. So everything that we know about uh, the relative kinematics and dynamics of motion across the plate boundaries consistent with the uh, view that we have a fairly competent and coherent North American plate and the Pacific plate. And in their interiors, they're not really uh, deforming. So they act like rigid bodies. And at depths, there is no indication that there is some other chunk of material that is moving at significantly different velocity. And so they seem to uh, behave and act like coherent units. And all of action is happening on the boundary between them. Okay, so the question was about activity in Japan and in Tokyo in particular, and whether the type of faults that they have over there um, are similar to ones that we have in California, and in um, particular San Andreas. Um, in, in Japan, they have a completely different type of faults. Uh, they're called thrust faults, and they're associated with the so-called subduction zone. So what happens in Japan is that the Pacific plate is uh, diving below, uh, below Japan uh, islands, and the relative motion between that uh, diving plate and the overriding plate is, in fact, producing uh, friction and uh, earthquakes on this uh, great megathrust. And so... Um, Potentially, the size of earthquakes in subduction zones is much, much larger than the size of earthquakes we can expect uh, on the strike-slip fault like we have in California. So, in short, they have much more dangerous kind of faults than, than we do here. Okay, so the question was whether there is any relationship between weather and earthquakes, and I guess between climate and earthquakes, whether uh, global warming somehow, somehow may affect uh, the occurrence of, uh, of large earthquakes. Um, there is uh, no definite data that, uh, that we know about uh, that would point out to the relationship between weather and uh, earthquake occurrence. Earthquakes are nucleating down at depths of uh, 5, 10 kilometers, and so at those kinds of depths, um, information from the atmosphere really does not propagate uh, deep, deep into the Earth. Um, also, the types of changes that are, that are associated with uh, you know, changes at the surface of the Earth are fairly small. So here we're talking about tectonic stresses that may be uh, 
megapascals and tens of megapascals uh, in magnitude, and what happens in the atmosphere produces signals or loading, which is many orders of magnitude less. So there are no good physical reasons to also believe that there will be a connection. As far as global warming is concerned, um, again, temperature changes uh, globally are uh, so small, even though they have very important impact on the climate, the effect on the solid Earth is, is really minuscule. So short answer is no. Okay, so the question was um, uh, about the uh, earthquakes that are happening offshore and whether they have some impact on uh, seismic hazard. Um, what I was showing today was indeed based primarily on land data, and this is uh, because this is where we, we can make these precise measurements of uh, surface deformation. Uh, we also have very dense seismic networks that uh, tell us quite precisely well, where these old little earthquakes are happening, and they seem to be associated uh, with major faults. We can uh, also measure the locations of earthquakes that are happening offshore, and uh, indeed there are large um, uh, significant faults that we know about that are in fact uh, off the California uh, coast to the west from us. Uh, one example I was showing was um, uh, Newport Inglewood fault that goes offshore in LA and continues uh, just parallels the coast and then um, makes a landing again uh, here um, in La Jolla. So these faults are important. Uh, they take up some of the relative motion between uh, the North American Pacific Plate, but uh, they, they do not slip at, at rates that are as high as faults inland. And we know that because we have measurements further offshore, for example, in the Catalina Islands. And so there is not much of a velocity difference between, say, La Jolla and Catalina Islands. And from that measurement, we know that there is not much of a relative motion on these deep faults uh, offshore. But they do produce earthquakes from time to time. Um, yeah, the question was uh, about the current views on the so-called triangle of life where you should really hide uh, when um, you feel strong shaking. And uh, I think, indeed, this, was, uh, this view was evolving through time. Uh, so there was a time at which uh, it was believed that the triangle of life is important. Now I think this view is disfavored because um, you, you want to get away from the moving objects. And so if you are in a doorway or if you know, there is some hinging surface that can move around when um, uh, the whole building is moving around, you, you want to be away from such objects. And so now the thinking is that you really should uh, uh, drop cover and hold um, under some solid surface like a table or um, uh, something that you can find around. So just stay away from moving objects, and uh, the best advice is really to go to the Shake, uh, ShakeOut website and check out the most recent information and suggestions. Well, I want to thank you very much, Yuri. That was wonderful talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.